Titus chapter 3 is where we'll find ourselves. Before I read that, I just want to remark a little bit. We're a little bit uh, different in this these three books than we usually are. Usually we just go through sequentially, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter in a book. Uh, but for these three letters, we're a little more thematic. Uh, there's five main themes that we're going to be covering over the summer. Uh, three sermons each. And so about 15 weeks, uh, we'll get through these these five main topics that Paul addresses in these three books. And so our first three messages um, are laying a theological groundwork for the rest of the summer. And here's one reason why we felt like that was important. In many of Paul's letters in the New Testament, he takes great time um, to lay down a good theology about who we are before he talks about what we do. And this is so easy for us in our culture and on our, our natural state to get this wrong, that we want uh, who we are to be about what we do. But, but God makes us who we are, and then we do what we do for him. And so we don't do what we do in order to earn anything from him. He's already made us. Um, uh, he's already put us into Christ. We're already forgiven. Um, and so we need to recognize that first and then recognize that our actions flow out of that. And so in letters like Romans and Ephesians especially, Paul takes huge chunks of text to explain who we are before we get to the what we do. And in Romans, it's the first 11 chapters before Paul says in chapter 12, therefore, behave a different way. And he takes 12, 13, and 14, and some of 15 to talk about what we do. Uh, but he doesn't do that here in the pastoral epistles in First and Second Timothy and Titus, in part because he's writing to pastors. And so they've spent a lot of time with Paul. They maybe even contributed to uh, the actual penning of those other letters. And so uh, he doesn't take time to, to explain that. But we need to recognize that before we delve into it. And so we're going to spend multiple weeks talking about how God, uh, as, we, as we talked about in the intro sermon two weeks ago, how we are to conduct ourselves within the family of God. That's, that's the purpose of Paul's letter that he writes in 1 Timothy 3.15. But Before we talk about how we are to conduct ourselves, we have to have our foundation correct theologically as to why we conduct ourselves that way. And we conduct ourselves that way because that's who God makes us in Christ. And so we're, gonna, we're exploring that over last week, this week, and next week is the theological foundation in these books, and they're not necessarily lengthy parts of the books. Paul mentions them, and they're significant, but they're not necessarily central to what he's saying. And so Paul makes reference to the underpinning theology, but he doesn't make them central. He doesn't prolong his writings about them as, we, as he does in other books. And so uh, before we uh, get into what we do, we want to talk about the foundations of who we are. And so uh, who we are is made that way. We're made that way because of God's greatness and his goodness, these two aspects of who God is. And when theologians talk about God, they often talk about him in these two categories. And so last week, we looked at God's greatness. And so if you would even just flip back with me to 1 Timothy 1 and 17. Before I do that, let me just pray for us this morning as you're turning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to gather with these saints that you have called your own. We thank you so much for uh, bringing us out of darkness and into your glorious light, God. And so lead us and guide us in this time this morning together. 
Lord, we've come for encouragement, we've come for exhortation, we've come for rebuke and correction. And so, God, will you use your word, uh, will you use your truth to do so this morning? Will you apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit this morning? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Timothy 1 and 17, Brian talked about last week the greatness of God. We talked about how Paul erupts into this worship stanza known as a doxology uh, in chapter 1 and verse 17 of 1 Timothy. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I won't review all that Brian went into last week, but just notice I was struck last week by this idea that we serve, that the God of the Bible, the God we seek to serve and uphold is boundless, unique, and will never change. That is the God of the Bible. That's what I get from that one little verse right there. He is boundless, he is utterly unique, and he will never change throughout eternity. And so the Bible actually has a term for to, to encapsulate all those things into one term. That term is holiness, the holiness of God. It refers to those things that make God uniquely God. So here, here we see Paul say the only God, right? He, he has all these boundless characteristics, and he's the only one that has those characteristics. He is utterly unique in the universe, unrivaled, unparalleled in his boundlessness, and he will be that way forever. So I know there's a lot to take in there, but that's a way of summarizing the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is referred to as holy. He is set apart. He is different than everything he has created. He's not within the creation, but he is outside of the creation. He is the one who created it. And therefore, he is worthy of all praise, all worship, all service, and all devotion. And so we saw last week... um, so, so we've talked about, we're talking about God's holiness, right? We're talking about his utter uniqueness in the universe. Um, and so one comparison that has been made over time is that God, God's holiness could be compared to the sun. The sun in our universe. The sun in our universe is utterly unique within our context, within our universe. There's nothing like it. All other planets are, are comprised differently and they do different things. The sun is utterly unique and it's utterly great and awesome and powerful, seemingly uh, unendingly so. And so the sun uh, serves an important role and it has some boundaries to it. And what I mean by that is if you get too close to the sun, you are utterly consumed by it because you aren't what it is. You aren't what it is. If you get too far away from the sun, you grow cold and you die. Utterly lifeless. Uh, because ultimately we are reliant upon the sun for life. But we live in this thin window, this perfect uh, placement in proximity to the sun where its warmth fuels life, but not so much so that life is destroyed. And uh, we get reprieve because of the rotation of the earth away from the sun, but not so much so that we grow cold and we die. And so we are perfectly placed relative to the sun. And likewise, uh, people have, like I said, compared God's holiness to the sun. And so likewise, we as people, just like the earth, need placed at just the right position in relationship to God so that we are neither consumed by his greatness or we drift into outer darkness and separation from him. 
See the comparison there, the analogy? So we can think about this in biblical terms. In the garden, we were placed in this perfect location, and we basked in the warm radiance of God's greatness and his goodness to us. Just like the earth relative to the sun, we were in relationship with God's holiness. It didn't destroy us, but it rather brought life to us. But sin, as we see in Genesis 3, causes separation from God's greatness because his greatness and his goodness cannot handle sin. It cannot stand sin. He is so good and he is so great, he must drive out sin. He must destroy it. He must uh, remain integral to himself. As we said, he's that way forever. He's unchanged. And because sin would change God's holiness, he must drive it away. And so God distanced himself from creation for our own good. Rather than destroying us, he distances himself from us. And so then the story of the Bible is how this one true God, this holy God through Christ, brings us back into that perfect place where he does not consume us and we're not at such a far distance that we are separated from him in cold darkness, but we, re- we receive uh, life eternal from his greatness and his goodness. And so we deal with this idea of greatness and goodness in perfect balance and in perfect harmony. And so as we talked about last week, we see examples in the Bible when people encounter God When they encounter God's greatness, they suddenly become instantly aware of God's holiness and its all-consuming nature. We see that throughout the Bible. Moses is an example of that. Isaiah is an example of that. Uh, Paul is an example of that. And, And there's many more. When they encounter God's greatness, they realize they should be utterly consumed and destroyed by it because it's so awesome. But we see this over and over again that God... Uh, provides a way, rather than destroying those whom he comes in contact, who come in contact with his greatness, rather he comes to their rescue, not their destruction. So I want to talk a little bit about that today. I want to talk about how it is that God's greatness doesn't just overwhelm and destroy everything it's exposed to. And so we're going to do that in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3, the last page of the books that we are reading together. Titus chapter 3, Paul is closing his letter to Titus out, and before he does so, he lays down this uh, just synopsis, this theological synopsis that is so va- can be so valuable to us as we seek to follow him. And so Paul, Paul describes the icy, uh, cold darkness of this world in verse 3 of chapter 3. Paul says this, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. That's how Paul describes the iciness of this world, how icy and cold it can be when we distance ourselves from God. You know, there was a, um, a songwriter that wrote a song a number of years ago that tried to imagine what the world would be like without God. Does anybody know the song? John Lennon wrote it. It's called Imagine. And imagined a world where God was not present, 
where God was not involved, where there was no religion. And, and, and therefore, John Lennon drew this conclusion that if, if there were no religion, if there were no God to speak of, then we would all just get along. We would all just be okay. But I think John Lennon was totally wrong. When I imagine a world with no God, with no moral mooring, with no understanding of greatness, of power, and of eternality, this is what I imagine that world to be like. Cold, dark, and the most hopeless place you can think of, full of people who are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by their passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. That's the world that we're given in the Bible. And so you can either take John Lennon's uh, assumption that the world would be great without God, or you can trust the Bible that the world isn't great without God, but that the world given over to itself will give itself over to evil. I mean, really what John is postulating there is that the, all the evil in the world is coming from God and religion. And I think that is a ridiculous position. And Paul does too. And so Paul contrasts verse 3 with verse 4. One of the more valuable words in Paul's vocabulary is this word, but. And so in verse 4, he uses it skillfully. He says, but. And so he's contrasting what he just said, that cold, dark place. He's contrasting it with this, verse 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. When it appeared. And so imagine, just imagine this. Imagine a cold, dark, self-centered, self-absorbed world. And then God's warm, radiant light piercing into the darkness. His kindness and His love making an appearance. That's kind of the imagery I think Paul is driving us towards a little bit here. When he talks about the appearance of God, the appearance of His love, and the appearance of uh, His kindness. He is, of course, making reference here to Jesus Himself. When Jesus appeared, when Jesus responded to uh, the need that humanity had, and the love that God had for humanity. And so Paul then goes on to describe what happened when God made his appearance. Verse 5. Did he crush us? Did he destroy us? Did he condemn us? Did he judge us? No. He saved us. So when God's kindness appears, when his love for mankind appeared in Christ... He saved us. And it gets even better than that. He saved us not by our works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life life. Now, upon initial reading of that, if you're a believer, that should stir excitement with inside of you. If you're not a believer, it might stir 
curiosity with inside of you. And if you're antithetical to the gospel, if you don't believe it, if you believe we'd be better off with God, then this is, uh, this is, this is uh, an annoyance to you, perhaps. You don't want to hear these words. You don't believe these words. You don't take them very seriously. But we do here this morning at Pillar Woodlawn. We take these words very seriously. They create the underlying foundation for our lives, how we believe we ought to conduct ourselves. That is based on the truths found here in these verses. And so for the next few minutes, I want to unpack these verses a little bit. I want us to meditate on them this morning and be encouraged by their implications. I want to bring your focus and attention to this phrase that Paul uses, uh, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So, so verse 5 is, is broken up this way. It says, He saved us, and then it gives us a little descriptor, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy. That's, that's, ha- that's sort of the, uh, the, that's excluding our works or our participation in it. We'll get to that in a second. And then he uses this phrase, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, this phrase is not a common phrase to Paul. In fact, this is kind of the only place that he uses it in the Bible. So this idea of regeneration or renewal, and this very simple, don't need to get too in-depth into the original language to realize that the meaning of this is to make new, to create again, to bring life from that which had no life, this creative act. And so this is, this is the process or the means of salvation, as we might say, the application of what Jesus has done for us to the individual is known as the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So I want to unpack a little bit this morning. I want us to notice some characteristics of this process, this process of regeneration and renewal that we undergo as believers. Notice with me here in these verses a few characteristics. Number one, this, uh, this work of renewal... <clears throat> is available to everyone. It's, it's universal in its nature. Chapter 3 and verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior uh, and His love for mankind appeared. If you go back up just a few verses into chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says this again, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. More common verse to go to is John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And so we see that God's love for everyone is what motivates His action towards us. His kindness, His goodness, the goodness of His love flowing from His character, from His being, from who He is, is displayed not for a subset or a small group, but is available and made available and has appeared to everyone. It's universal in that sense. Notice number two. Not only is it universal, it's also exclusive and personal. This is, not, this is the part that people often don't like about it. Verse 5 says, He saved us. Not He saved everybody, but those that receive the Word, those that have placed their faith in Christ, those that not by works of righteousness that they have done, but by God's plan, by His merciful plan, have entered into this covenant and relationship with Him. 
And so it's universal on the one hand, yes, but it's also exclusive on the other hand. You cannot reject this plan, this plan of salvation, and expect to be saved by it all at the same time. Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to the pastor of this church. And and so when he says us there, he doesn't mean humanity. He means to those uh, himself and to those he is writing. And so it's exclusive and it's personal. Each one must partake in it individually. Number three, notice the objective nature of this work. This little subset here, this little explanation Paul gives us in verse 5. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy. And so it's a work that God does to you, not something you accomplish by your works. You are the object of God's working. You are not the one performing the work on yourself. It's something that's happening to you. And so those times when we are tempted to believe that God is either impressed by or moved by our action and our activity are incorrect. God is not moved by our action or activity. He is moved according to His mercy. So no work of righteousness, no attendance at a church service, no amount of devotion, no amount of good works can ever account for the sin that binds us. Only by the work of the Holy Spirit, applying the work of, uh, that Christ accomplished on the cross and by the resurrection, only the uh, washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit can save us. And so notice the objective nature. It's by the Holy Spirit that this happens. Number four, notice that the uh, work that is done by God to us is effective and complete. It's effective and complete. Notice the past tense that Paul uses throughout the text. He saved us as if it's already happened. Verse 6, he poured out his spirit as if it's already happened. Verse 7, having been justified by his grace. Notice the past tense there. All in the past tense. In Christ, we have already been placed at the exact right spot relative to God's holiness. We can't place ourselves there. We don't know the exact right spot. We can't get there on our own. But through the washing of regeneration and through the renewal of the Holy Spirit upon us, we are effectively and completely placed at the perfect location that we need to be to receive life from God's holiness, not condemnation and judgment. Finally, notice with me that this washing and this renewal that comes to us is futuristic. Verse 7, so that having been justified by His grace, past tense, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And so there's much more to come. There's much more to come. Amen? Let's read about much more to come. You're not quite as excited enough there about more to come. I understand that. So we'll take time this morning. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Paul will take some more time in the book of Romans to explain what this means, this more to come. And so Romans chapter 8. We'll try to get you a little more awake and excited about 
what is yet to come this morning. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. So Paul is going to make this comparison that, that what we experience right now, what, what Paul experienced by way of suffering, and I won't compare our suffering to his, you know, our suffering is, uh, you know, our coffee, our latte at Starbucks wasn't made quite right this morning. And his suffering was shooing the di- di- uh, disease-ridden rats away so that he could finish this letter while, while in prison. But Paul said that, that the current suffering of this age, this present time, isn't even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Look as the reason why he gives us in verse 19. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. So at the fall in Genesis 3, we see here Paul alluding to the fact that that creation, the whole of the cosmos, was subjected to futility. It was subjected to corruption. And that it itself longs to be free. It longs to be freed from bondage. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as its first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this we hope we were saved. Now in this hope we were saved. Yet hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait with it, uh, wait for it with patience. So there we begin to unpack what Paul means here. He simply uh, uses a simple phrase in Titus. Remember, in Titus, he doesn't have the time or the space to unpack all this. He just simply uses the phrase that we might become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Well, this begins to unpack that, and we could go further down this trail. We won't this morning, but this begins to unpack. What does Paul mean by that? Paul means that there is a cosmic plan in place for the redemption and renewal of all things. So maybe you're here this morning, and and you're suffering from this current age. Maybe there's something grieving you this morning or something ailing you this morning. Maybe you yourself have been subject to the corruption and futility of this life. And so there should be a longing and a yearning and a growing, a sense of urgency within you that's longing for something better. I mean, tell me you can't watch the news and long and hope for something better. I mean, i got to turn it off. It's just the same old stuff. It's just the same old argument and the same old stuff. And I, I so long for something more and something better. So this futuristic sense of what God 
is doing, this futuristic thing that God is doing, this cosmic plan, this new age that we all hope for and we all want to participate in. We all want this world to be better. So you might ask yourself, how can I participate? How can I get in on this great and good plan that God has? How can I be regenerated? How can I be a part of God's cosmic plan? So, number one, recognize your need. Recognize your shortcomings. Do you believe, Titus chapter 3, verse 3? Do you believe that you were once foolish and disobedient and deceived? Do you believe you were once enslaved by various passions and pleasures? Do you believe you are in need of regeneration? Do you believe you need a new way of doing things? Remember, as we said last week, we say this week, when people truly encounter the greatness of God, they are suddenly aware that God is awesome and they are not. And so the first step to receiving this regeneration is realize you are not as awesome as you think you are. And God is far awesomer. Now I got your attention. He's far awesomer than you ever conceived. And that only happens by an encounter with the living God. We live in a culture that refuses to celebrate God's greatness. It it will not uphold God's standard. We live in a culture where most churches will not celebrate God's greatness, His holiness, His perfection. His boundlessness. And so we are challenged and we are pressed in every way by people that say they have no need of God because they are perfectly capable of living up to the own, their own standards that they've made for themselves. We've created a society where that is the norm. And so, number one, have we encountered the greatness of God? Have we recognized our need for a new way? Paul did this when he talked about himself in 1 Timothy 1.15 we read last week. He said, God had mercy on me, the worst of them. The worst of them, Paul called himself. And so are we, are we willing to lump ourselves in with the worst of them? The worst of the offenders against God and His holiness. Number one, so number one, if we realize we have a real serious need, if we realize we are not all that awesome, and God is. Then number two follows naturally. Then we turn our back on that subpar way. We declare our own pursuit of what we think is good as faulty. We turn away from doing things that way. We turn away. We abandon what we think is right. We abandon what we think is good in doing. We abandon it. The, the, the term that the Bible uses for the abandonment of our old way is repentance. We turn away from it, the act of repenting. So do we believe Titus? If we believe in Titus 3.3, do we believe in Titus 3.4? That the kindness of God has made an appearance. That he has appeared and his name is Jesus. That he is the only answer for our predicament. Which leads us to number three. How do we partake in this washing? Is is as Paul said in uh, many other times, that we believe. We simply believe it. We don't work to earn it. We aren't justified by our righteous works. We're not justified by, our works, by the works of the law. 
but rather we are justified by simply placing our full reliance on Christ. Our utter need and our utter helplessness results in us placing complete faith in Christ. That, that Christ will place us in the proper position relative to God's great holiness. And if we hide ourselves in Christ, we will not be crushed by the judgment of God's greatness. And then lastly, we receive new life based simply on that, based, based on the work of Christ and our faith in it, not by anything we have done, but simply by receiving it. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 and 16 that he received mercy. We allow ourselves to be the object of God's mercy. And so I ask this morning, even in this crowd that we have here today, have you been washed? Have you been renewed? As I said before, committing to come to a service doesn't wash you. Doing good works and being kind to the poor does not wash you. Feeling bad about the sin you do does not wash you. Only God can wash you by His Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. Only He can place you back into perfect alignment. So I pray if you're here this morning and you have never uh, done that, you've never committed and confessed Christ as Lord, You've never received that washing of the Holy Spirit, but this morning you have, you've, you've, God has revealed himself to you, to your heart, that you receive that renewal, that you receive that regeneration. I pray that most of us have done that. It's available, as I said, to everyone, just by receiving it. So you may be encouraged by those words, but, but that might have been something that you've done for many years, and you've, you've pondered on that. And so the question then becomes for the mature believer or the, the believer who's, who's followed Christ for a while, well, how does that impact me now? How does that impact me now? We see that come to fruition in, verses, in verse 8, a verse we haven't read yet. So Paul lays down this majestic cosmic theology about the gospel, right? He displays the gospel. He sets our eyes into the future. He reminds us of the past. He, he, he gets us to understand our present. He reminds us of the future to come. Then in verse 8, he says this. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. These are instructions to Titus. So Titus is to insist on these things. Why is Titus to insist on these things. So that those who have believed God, remember that was part of our equation for partaking, those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. And so we could continue on, but we're just going to lay that right there for now. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks, uh, in the days and weeks to come. But, but how does this impact us now? Those of us who believe we've been washed and we've, be, we've been regenerated and we've been renewed, we get to partake in what God is doing. I don't have to convince you that we are surrounded by the fear and the cold darkness of this world and, th- and that it can weigh on us sometimes, as I've said be- even before, just watch the news. But whether you go to work and are weighed by it, watch the news, watch the things going on in our country, you see things of injustice 
and things of foolishness, things of disobedience and deception. You see lots of this taking place in the world around us, and it, it can weigh on us, and it can frustrate us. We can also too often see these things not just in the world around us, but with inside of us as well. In Romans chapter 8, Paul calls himself a wretched man. The word wretched there means conflicted. It means somebody who knows the right thing to do but can't seem to will to do it. And so not only do we see this world around us, this cold world around us, but sometimes we even see that world still remaining with inside of us. So I pray here this morning that we may be able to uh, be refreshed and renewed in this idea that we have been washed by the Holy Spirit. We have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. And the reason he has done that is so that we might devote ourselves to good works. That we might devote ourselves to this new plan, to this new vision of an eternal hope, of an eternal world that God is creating. Not one that is foolish and disobedient and deceived, but one that gives life, one that is generous, one that is abundant. So I just draw your attention back to verse 6. I pray that this week as we go out into the world, as we go into the, sometimes the cold darkness of this world, that we would remember Paul saying this to us. That through Jesus Christ our Savior, verse 6, He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly. If we can remember one word from this morning, I pray that that would be it. That God's Spirit has been poured onto those who have been regenerated. It, it is abundantly. That our souls can be refreshed and renewed this morning because of the abundant outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you a question about, as you think about this week. Can we live this week in light of the abundance that has been poured out to us? Can we live the week ahead like we are the expectant recipient of a great eternal inheritance? Can we uh, live in such a way where others can bask in the warm glow of God working in our life? You know, they might be far from God, but I pray we're not. And I pray that, that because we have received this warmth of God's holiness, because we've been exposed to God's goodness in Christ, that our lives might reflect that warmth and that glow out. That we might introduce others to the goodness of God by the very works and acts that we engage in. That they might come to see and understand that their way of doing things is deficient. That they are in need of a great Savior, and that that Savior has come. The, the kindness of God has made its appearance to mankind. I pray that that can be our lives this week. So as we interact with those that are far from God, those who are cold and dead, may they be exposed to the goodness of God in our lives. And may the light of His appearance and of His kindness to us be reflected to them so that the salvation we've experienced and the hope that we have in a great future might become, they might become curious for that 
and pursue that themselves, that God might work through us, through our good works, not as a duty to obtain salvation, but as the warm rays of sunshine that might bring them to salvation. I pray we can live that this week. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, you have been abundant to us in the gospel. You have shined upon us, Lord, with great uh, generosity. Not because we've earned it or deserved it, Lord, but because it was according to your mercy. So, Lord, I just pray for a renewed and refreshed uh, uh, regeneration this morning, God. A, A refreshed outpouring, abundant pouring of your Spirit this morning, God. That we might know your greatness and experience your goodness so that we can carry it forth to the world. God, continue to renew us, change us, and transform us by this truth. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.